Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera news updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Where are we going? Okay, Unit 1 is a radio station, Flow 987. Yeah. Ah. Wow, this is... We're, yeah, we're just driving around. It's, it's a, we're, a parking lot. Single-story offices. Five, so four, you know, unit 5 is the Canadian Centre of Orthopaedics, Inc. Unit 6 classroom. is Classroom N. I think we are here. I think this is... Ooh. We're almost at uh, the uh, beautiful university. The college. So, Allison, what did we just do? So, we just walked around uh, in a circle in an office park in the Don Mills and Lawrence area of Midtown Toronto, and we were we were just coming to check out a uh, satellite campus, uh, which is a private college, and it is one of many many of these uh, in in the GTA. I mean, you yeah. you know, you think about an Ontario college campus, um, you know, think of Fanshawe campus in London or um, maybe even an urban one like George Brown. You know, you're seeing fancy modernish buildings with big windows and lots of branding and you can see students inside the culinary part of, of George Brown when you walk down the street in Toronto. This is the opposite of that. It couldn't be more tucked away from city life. It is down a long one-way street uh, amid a bunch of other... it's a two-way street, otherwise we won't be able to get out of here. Uh, yeah, I guess it's more of a loop, de- a dead-end street. That's Cult the word we call it, sure. <laughs> and coming and going from it are many, many international students. We were actually not sure whether there would actually be students here because it's July, but turns out there very much are lots and lots of them. Um, we talked to a few. They didn't want to come on the podcast, but they had both told us they had been in Canada for a few months. They've been at the school for a few months. They're studying business. I don't know if it's designed to be, but it's very much a second-class education system being used to underwrite and sub- subsidize the colleges, uh, their primary main campuses, where we, and many of the colleges, I'm sure, very have very diverse student bodies. But, uh, yeah, the... the, 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 the it's not yeah. about diversity. This is a different a different thing, yeah. it feels like. And I think college presidents have been forthright about this. They say, well, our student, you know, our, our schools was built in the 70s and it needs redone and we have no way to pay for it other than to basically create these secondary schools. The thing is that since Doug Ford took office and, and opened the floodgates uh, to this type of Uh, these type of partnership systems, and we'll get into that later in the episode, the thing has gone, I guess, full hog. These partnership schools have grown way bigger than anyone expected. There's way more students coming than anyone expected, and there's starting to be externalities and um, for the province and also, you know, for, for these students. Damn, there are so many, really a lot of people here. I'm Allison Smith, publisher of Queen's Park Today, and it's the dog days of summer, so school's out, or at least it should be. I'm Jonathan Goldsby, news editor at Candleland, and I'm off to 
degrees this week, which would be far more exciting if for 10 to 12 hours in any given 24-hour period, it isn't promising to be hotter than anything I have experienced in my life. And this is Wag the Doug, a monthly podcast about Doug Ford. There's something very major going on with Ontario's colleges right now. Something that has fundamentally altered how the province's post-secondary education system is funded, as well as caused major shifts in Canada's immigration program. And, as you might expect, given that this is, after all, Wag the Doug, this something major is almost entirely Doug Ford's doing. Five years into Ford's time leading the province, we are starting to see that some of the early decisions made by his government, including decisions that at the time may have seemed problematic, but not necessarily catastrophic, well, time and capitalism have a fun way of turning even small policy changes into looming disasters. To tell this story, we have to flash back to October 30th, 2019, which is just a little over a year after Ford and the PCs took office. Those were heady days. Maleficent was at the top of the box office, Lizzo's Truth Hurts was at the top of the pop charts, and Lindsay Vanstone was still hosting the province's hottest web propaganda show, Ontario News Now. The provincial government issued a news release touting its plans to, quote, cut red tape for colleges and universities by simplifying how colleges, private, and out-of-province institutions receive consent to offer new degrees in Ontario. This would reduce duplication, the government told us, to help the post-secondary sector deliver new programs faster so students can get the training they need to get a good job and help grow Ontario's economy. Prabhmeet Sakaria, the PC's current Treasury Board president and who was then the minister of red tape production, was quoted in the release pledging that Queen's Park was fixing regulations that had led to unintentional consequences. Unlike the PC's own regulations, I guess, which typically precipitate more foreseeable disasters. In any case, the change they were announcing did lead to its own suite of unintended consequences so vast that they're impacting people 11,000 kilometers away. Although I guess the good news, I suppose, is that those are not 11,000 kilometers straight south and we are not at war with the Falkland Islands. The change the government rolled out that fall was to put an end to a liberal government-era moratorium on Ontario's public colleges. Those are the ones with names that you know, like Mohawk, Georgian, Fanshawe, partnering with private institutes to create satellite campuses in the GTA that offer degrees almost exclusively to international students. The type of campuses that you heard Jono and I standing outside of off the top of the episode. At first glance, this might not seem like something major. I know it didn't to me at the time. It barely made headlines, and unless you were someone who was directly involved in the college's sector, it almost certainly passed you by. But since then, the number of colleges operating privately run satellite schools has doubled, and the number of international students they teach in Ontario has increased at least tenfold. Honestly, probably more, but we're, we still don't have all of that data. It can be tough to talk about data on a podcast, but on this subject in particular, it's really important. We want to give you some hard numbers so we can lay out how stark the circumstances are. In the 2021-22 school year, so the one that would have wrapped about a year ago, at least nine Ontario public colleges enrolled more international students than they did domestic students. And two of them, Lambton College, which is based in Sarnia, and Northern College in Timmins, 
had more than 80% of their student bodies comprised of international students. That year, Lambton had 1,907 domestic students and 8,773 students enrolled on international visas, whereas Northern College had 854 domestic students and 3,378 on visas. The 1,900 versus 8,700 is like, that is such a stark contrast. And a a key piece of this is that virtually none of these international students go to the school in Timmins or in Sarnia. While they're technically enrolled at Lambton or Northern, they're actually attending private institutions called Pierce College in Scarborough or C-Star College of Business, Health, and Technology in an office park at the corner of Highway 401 and the 404. These are the satellite campuses. There's some benches. Yeah, the, the amenities include one, two, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine benches and two pic- plastic picnic tables. Beside dumpsters in a parking lot and overgrown As, weeds. Yes, alongside one, two, three, four, five. Oh, no, one, two dumpsters and several planters. It appears to be sharing a building with the uh, the Brick Street Bakery. Interesting. So on Unit 7, there is a little map that tells you what's inside it. It says there is a room K, a room L, a room M, a lab, a washrooms, and a lunchroom. So this unit, there are three units. This unit has a total of four I guess, classrooms and, well, three classrooms and a lab. So that's very small. Satellite campus students predominantly come to Canada from India, according to provincial data, but also to a lesser degree from countries in the Caribbean, South America, and Africa, as well as the Philippines and China. The career college we visited at the top of this episode offers on its website as a resource for students the contact information for several embassies and consulates. And actually, in addition to those for a handful of countries in South and East Asia, I thought it was kind of interesting that Russia was on there too. Um, But the main incentive for international students to attend these private colleges is, one, the fact that they're in the GTA and not in Timmins, which is considered a plus to everyone but the 43,000 or so people who choose to call Timmins home. Uh, And two, Canada's post-graduation work permit, which allows college graduates to work in Canada for up to three years after graduation, uh, which can be a path to permanent residency. So the reason the public college's partnership aspect is so important is that it's allowed these private satellite colleges to grant diplomas that are valid for these postgrad permits. If the province wasn't letting schools like Lambton partner with C-Star, then C-Star, a private company, a private college that is doesn't have to be up to the same educational standards as, as provincial colleges, couldn't facilitate work permits for international students, and probably not too many people would fly 10,000 kilometers to go there, and it very possibly wouldn't exist. The fact that you mentioned these schools being located in the GTA is important too, Jono, because the partnerships are only happening with more far-flung colleges. But crucially, you know, if we're talking about housing, which I know we're going to get to later, GTA-based colleges like Centennial and George Brown are also bringing in thousands, uh, many, many thousands of international students to their main campuses. They just don't use the satellite program because they don't have to because they're already in Toronto. We don't have an exact figure because some colleges reported large chunks of their student body as either other or unknown rather than being on a visa or being a domestic or being an indigenous person. 
But from what we do know, there were at least 90,000 international students enrolled in 2021, but that number could be as high as 120,000. And that's compared to only about 150,000 domestic students. So if like the trajectory and uh, domestic student enrollment also in Ontario has been on the decline for a little while. So the trajectory of these two lines are poised to cross uh, sometime pretty soon, where there'll be more international college students in Ontario than domestic ones. So what is the point of a public college system? Unlike universities, which to some extent are still grasping at the ideals of a liberal arts education, like Tom Cruise free soloing a cliff, colleges are places to train young people in the skills of tomorrow. At Ontario's colleges, you can learn everything from carpentry, horticulture, dental hygiene, and journalism, the last of which being something that 875-odd students opted to do in the 2021-22 school year, of whom nearly all, surely, are now gainfully employed in their chosen field. The most impactful policy the Doug Ford government has enacted when it comes to Ontario's post-secondary sphere has been freezing tuition. The cost of tuition for domestic students hasn't increased in three years and once again won't rise this fall. And, you know, there are ways in which that's a good thing or that which it could be a good thing. Lower fees charged to people who often have the lowest incomes is good. But, you know, these being conservatives, it's not like they offset the school's lost revenue with increases to their subsidies. So in the end, the result is that colleges and universities uh, have been deprived of both funds and ways to raise those funds, at least when it comes to domestic students. Hence, C-Star, Trios, Alpha, International Academy, and ACE, Acumen. They flourish. Looking to start a new career? With a diploma from Trios College, you can be working in an industry that's in demand by employers. Trios College offers hands-on training in one year or less, preparing you for career opportunities in business, technology, healthcare, and criminal justice. Earn a diploma in business, network engineering, police foundation. This actually reminds me of a conversation we had during our recent episode about TVO, Jono, when we were talking about how TVO is basically forced to run these side hustles like online math tutoring in order to make enough money to fulfill its mandate of education and journalism. That's kind of what the colleges are doing in order to provide a pleasant enough level of services and infrastructure to the students that enroll to attend their main campuses, so like to Ontario students mostly, they have to undertake these elaborate side deals with private companies and international recruiters and visa processes. It's just such a bizarre and completely inefficient way for public organizations to operate. It's weird for post-secondary institutions to sort of create secondary post-secondary institutions. Yeah. It's, the, it's kind of the gig work of, of public services. It's creating this, this whole other thing on the side that is less regulated, probably not as good an experience, and offering a certain kind of people a different and often lesser product, right? It's In some ways, it very much feels like it's entrenched in the idea of a post-secondary education underclass. Which is just not a thing we really had before. I mean, there were and still are private colleges, like DeVry is the one that everyone thinks of because they advertise on TV and mm. radio a lot. So those are kind of like technical schools and like we're maybe seen as a bit scammy and I'm, I'm sure like some of them could be. Um, but that was kind of, that used to be the secondary class of yeah. post-secondary. Right now we're talking about sort of within the scope of a single institution. Like I think, like I can't remember we talked about this in the intro, but like, you know, we talk about universities, for example, having an over-reliance on 
international students because their tuition is unregulated. Though we are typically not able to support those students well, did not give them what they promised, but at least those students are, by and large, sharing the same classrooms, sharing the, sharing the same campus as domestic students. I mean, there may be certain programs that you know lean more toward one than the other, but they're sharing the same, basically the same thing, if they, even if they're paying more for it. Whereas in this system, you know, this is a whole secondary, post-secondary system where domestic students have are given one product, have one experience. With like a student center and a gym and a Tim Hortons and a library. Which was, again, wasn't something I would, I was, things I would have, I guess, all taken for granted or things I wouldn't have been too excited about. But the other people who also will get a diploma from these colleges and can say they've gone to these colleges and have gone to these colleges effectively are being shoved off, shoveled off to strip malls far, far, far from the regular campus and classes that are attended by domestic students. Yeah, it's honestly, it's really messed up. Um, you know, I wanted to do this episode because it's the more I think about this and the more I learn about it, just the more messed up it really, really seems. And also nowhere else in Canada is doing this. <laughs> Let's also stress that. Mm. Um, at least the Auditor General, that's what she said uh, in a report from, I think, two years ago, a year and a half ago. So I'll mm-hmm. defer to her knowledge on that because that's as far as I know. But it really boggles the it boggles the mind that this is what what yeah. what it's come to. <laughs> so yeah. I mentioned earlier that the that the Kathleen Wynne Liberals they had placed a moratorium on public colleges partnering with satellite colleges. That's an important piece because these privatization forces were already in motion before Doug Ford took office. They'd been operating on a small scale since around 2005, and the Northern colleges were kind of, as far as I can tell, sort of the first to get in with this uh, concept. They've been feeling the pinch because of low enrollment, changing demographics in the North, and decreased per-student funding, which has been on the downswing in Ontario since 2008. I think colleges get, or post-secondary schools get an average of, like, less than $10,000 per student or something. Mm. Um, which is, again, lowest in Canada. So, I mean, the thought is, right, it's easier to get people to go to your school if it's in a more densely populated place. The traditional way to do this would be to do what universities have done for a long time. Open your own satellite campus somewhere where there's lots of people. Think U of T Mississauga, U of T Scarborough. You know, go where the people are. But those schools are crucially operated by U of T. And there's there's lots of colleges also that have multiple campuses that they operate. But what it seems like, and I, I don't know the exact origin of when the colleges got this idea and when the province said it was okay, but what they realized is if you're only looking to lure international students, you're not trying to get the people living in Scarborough, or the people living in Mississauga, the people living um, in Brampton to necessarily go to your school because there's lots of competition, right? Your school might not have the name recognition, doesn't have the big programs that those schools have. You're just tiny northern college. Well, if you're really looking to lure international students, all you have to do is pay recruiters to tell them your school is good and find some private company to operate it for you. (laughs) And that really is what it boils down to. Just schools don't have to operate to the same standards as Ontario colleges because those students are going to be tied to your school for their visa in some way, shape or form. And they're going to be less likely to complain or to switch to another school if yours sucks because they don't want to have to leave the country. 
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world. And BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Allison and I obtained a copy of a report commissioned by the Wynn government in 2017 by a consultant and former assistant deputy minister of finance named David Trick. Well, really, Allison got this because she's the one of us who's more likely to have sources who are former assistants to the deputy minister or former assistant deputy ministers. Trick was asked by the post-secondary ministry to assess the risks of public colleges partnering with satellite schools and came up with a document that basically prophesied the current state of affairs. On facilities. Contracting out education to private companies could result in facilities that are inadequate or reflect poorly on the college. And he actually goes on to cite unnamed presidents of colleges who were worried that sites could be located in shopping centers or strip malls, which are not specifically prohibited. Well, Doesn't look great. Reflects poorly mm -hmm. on the college. What, what can you say? <laughs> on recruitment. <laughs> colleges face a risk that recruitment practices may be overly aggressive or unethical. If questionable practices come to light, colleges may be seen to be taking advantage of vulnerable newcomers to Canada who have limited knowledge of Canada or of either English or French. This poses a reputational risk to the colleges involved and perhaps to all colleges and the province. Capital P province. On quality control. Colleges face a risk that the private provider may not offer a learning experience comparable to that offered by public colleges, and students may not achieve the learning outcomes associated with the credential. So this poses a reputational risk to the colleges involved and perhaps to all colleges and the capital P province. I mean, kind of sums it up, right? Show me the lie, as they say. <laughs> So the Kathleen government read this report and determined that it looked like the sector was heading down a bad path. So her government blocked any more colleges from partnering with private schools. It's hard to say how this would have gone if the liberals had been reelected in 2018. Honestly, I could see them having had come up with some sort of technocratic solution that let this private system expand, but like likely more slowly and with some constraints. Ah, liberals, most of the same policies as conservatives, but more slowly and with some constraints. But in true Doug Ford fashion, he just, you know, like, well, picture an airplane ejecting its toilet waste mid-flight, which is not something that actually happens, but you can, st you can still picture it. Uh, anyway, trick support wasn't the only warning. In 2021, as we alluded to, Auditor General Bonnie Lissick published a value-for-money audit that outlined a lot of the same problems. She found recruiters that worked with colleges were making misleading claims about the schools students would attend, and that there was, you know, basically no quality assurance process for the private schools at all. When the PC government scrapped Wynn's moratorium, they put in place a rule that mandated a maximum two-to-one ratio of international students to domestic students. So a private college should theoretically only have twice as many students as the public college's main campus, but, you know, Lissick found that that wasn't really being followed either, as clear from the numbers we rhymed off earlier. 
And this all brings us to earlier this year, when the PC government actually did make a change, a very quiet change, to the rules that govern how these schools operate. In March, the government updated its 2019 Ministerial Policy Directive, uh, which is what they came up with following that news release we talked about. Again, they did not advertise that or either, but this laid out the lays out the rules that colleges have to follow. They changed it to order that public colleges can't enroll more than 7,500 international students at a time at any and all of the private satellite schools they partner with. So if you're one college, you can't uh, have 7,500 international students at one private college and 7,500 at another. Like, it's only max 7,500. If they do break this cap, uh, which kicks in in September, schools will be fined over $5,000 per student that goes over the cap. So I found this out when I was reporting a story for Queen's Park today in May, and it intrigued me for a few reasons. Firstly, it was an example of the PCs doing something that many people who watch this space uh, would perceive as good, but they didn't actually tell anyone they did it. Colleges and Universities Minister Jill Dunlop's office told me that the move was actually in response to the Auditor General's report. So this should be a good government story. Like, they're listening, they're learning, they're keeping things in check. But as far as I can tell, I'm the only journalist who's noticed this so far, and they're certainly not advertising it. That, to me, means that the PCs are trying to signal to someone who isn't the general public that they're on top of the issue. Next question is, who could that be? Well, my best guess is it's the federal government, because the biggest risk, or one of the biggest risks to the status quo, is that the feds take a good look at Ontario letting in 100,000 non-permanent residents every year and decide this isn't actually how immigration should work, and they put a lid on it. And there's also a huge caveat with the 7,500-person international student cap That is that it still actually gives most of the schools a lot of room to grow. Many of them, most of them, I would say, their their student international student body is between like 3,000 and 4,000, or it can be fewer. So it won't actually change anything except for one or two schools that are over that threshold. According to the Auditor General, and if we are ever asked in a development meeting, what is the distinct sound of Wag the Dog? We could say it is sentences that begin with, according to the Auditor General. (laughs) So according to the AG, if the federal government decides to really crack down and stop allowing private satellite schools to grant acceptance letters that then lead to student visas or stop letting graduates get post-grad visas, then for a number of public Ontario colleges, um, well, they're fucked. She didn't use that word. Uh, At least five colleges would be running deficits if they weren't supported by their private partners, which charge international students upwards of 20K a year. Lissick found that 92% of the tuition revenue at Northern College came from international students in that 21-22 period she looked at. During my reporting, I spoke to Alex Usher, who's a post-secondary consultant who owns the firm Higher Education Strategy Associates. He told me that the irony of this whole thing is that business is booming. Ontario's colleges sector is making money like nowhere else in the entire world right now, he said, and that's a direct quote. So the schools aren't just making up for student funding cuts and tuition freezes. They're actually making bank. 
St. Clair College, for example, that's one of the colleges that has partner schools, it went from having a 7.8% surplus in 2016-17 to a 39% surplus in 2021-2022. This all feels to me like when Tony Soprano says he came in at the end of this thing of ours. It's a party that's like spiraled out of control and there's nowhere to go but down. I mean, to be fair, that sentiment characterizes pretty much everything these days, not not least of which is, you know, the, the earth itself. But you know. but in the case of Ontario's diploma-granting post-secondary system, we know a few of the players who are benefiting still from this party. Uh, the public colleges now have more money to build new buildings. The private institutions that are likely paying their CEOs generously, and the provincial government, which has found yet another way to get away with underfunding public services. But another huge beneficiary is big business, which has been served up a seemingly limitless pool of cash-strapped international students to drain into the bog of low-paying service and gig work. The system that we have isn't subsidizing just Ontario's colleges, but also arguably like Uber Eats, Tim Hortons, Amazon, and so forth. And there's another level to this unfairness, too. You know, on the federal side, these post-grad work permits that students get, they'll expire after three years unless the holder of one, the postgraduate, has an actual full-time job. So if you're actually doing gig work, you could come to Ontario do two years of school, pay a flipping fortune for it, work um, part-time work, whatever, any sort of low-paid job for years while you're doing it, three years when you're when you're finished. If you don't wind up with a full-time employment, you're going back to the country you came from, and your you know big kind of struggle battle to to get into Canada um, and be, try to become a permanent resident is done for. And I think how you said the the seemingly limitless pool of these people, right? Like, it doesn't matter to the system Mm -hmm. at large what happens to any individual because, uh, you know, people are lining up to just keep doing this. You know, while we did chat to a few of the students we met at the campus, we don't really have the resources, the time to get to, to really get into the international student experience, which thankfully has been reasonably well covered. The Fifth Estate did a really good 45-minute documentary last fall called Soul the Lie, which we'll link to in the show notes. And, you know, it's not Ontario-specific, but I, I also often keep thinking of this W5 episode from this past spring about how Cape Breton University appears to have almost single-handedly caused a homelessness crisis in city Nova Scotia. We'll link to that too. And it will also link to uh, an episode of Candleland's Monday show that was produced by our former Wag the Dug producer, uh, Demi Lola Anime, in the summer of 2021 uh, called Canada's International Cash Cows. So I just want to make it clear that it's not John O and I implying that that these students are being used as a, a form of low-paid labor. Like, it's literally the federal government. For a long time before the pandemic and, and during, there was always a rule that international students in Canada could only work for 20 hours per week, any more than that, and they would be disqualified and maybe could, like, be kicked out of the country or something for breaking their visa terms. Uh, well, post-pandemic, in a world of uh, labor shortages and and big concern over that, last fall, in last October, federal immigration minister Sean Fraser actually lifted that 20-hour-per-week cap by literally saying, international students will help address Canada's labor shortage. And, and big business 
business, you know, big business is always lobbying for. And this is something the liberal government, the federal liberals are doing, too, is like expanding the temporary foreign worker pool. That mm-hmm. has now, the, the Globe had a good piece about this on the weekend. Hmm. That's been expanded. Uh, one of the biggest um, recipients of it now is a large, like, restaurant purveyor in Uh, New Brunswick, which is bringing in hundreds of temporary foreign workers, which, again, like, you have no rights if you're a temporary foreign worker. You have to leave soon. Um, So I think some rights, just almost none. Almost none. And, I mean, I think a lot of people think Canada's reliance on temporary foreign workers in the farming sector and, and other ones is, like, kind of a blemish on our country. And with the international student system, it's like, like they just found another workaround to almost uh-huh. do the exact same thing. Yeah. I mean, I think if you live in most many places in the GTA, like if you go to Tim Hortons or you go to many uh, fast casual restaurants, like that's who's doing the labor right now. Again, they don't have a lot of rights either. And it, and it really throws such a loop in like, you know, the Canadian dream of immigration. You come here, you get a like a low paid job and you work your way up. And like it's like now you're not even guaranteed to be able to stay. According to Statistics Canada, only 30 percent of people who graduate with uh, uh, international student visa and do the post-grad thing stay in Canada. And that's kind of an older number, maybe from like 2018 or something. So I feel like that's going to decline a lot once we start seeing these pools of 100,000 people every year added to it. I mean, we're talking about this is all is can, can be a bit tricky because like, you know, when we're talking about we're framing in terms of like, you know, we don't want people to come here on false pretenses. We don't want people to come here and have a shitty experience. We don't want people to come here and be exploited. We don't want come people to come here just for the sake of forming an underclass. We don't want people to come here and be homeless. You can almost as easily imagine people with different political interests approaching it from a different direction and beginning to blame immigrants who come here to go to school for, well, not taking our jobs because it seems like we want them to take our shitty jobs, but for taking up housing. Um, Because Canada, certainly Toronto, certainly cities, but pretty much all of Canada is facing immense, immense housing pressures. And it is not hard to imagine that, you know, certain more populist conservatives who like talking about the housing issue but don't want to place blame on developers or the, you know, financialization of housing, it's not, it's it's entirely conceivable and perhaps even foreseeable that uh, they could take take aim at a whip of anger against international students who have been coming here in very large numbers, you know, numbers that we can't support, uh, and start blaming them for taking up housing or for driving up pressures in the housing system, which I'm sure to some small degree they do, but there are probably like several, many, many things that are doing it much more so. If a government, federal government starts to change the policies, that, that could throw the whole system into disarray. And so, you know, liberals are, you know, do things slowly with constraints. If Pierre Pauli ever becomes prime minister, you could easily imagine this whole system being smashed to bits or somehow finding some other solution that in a way would weirdly be worse for the worse for everyone. I think you're absolutely right. And I yeah, I mean, it could bankrupt a number of Ontario colleges, although, you know, maybe they should have seen it coming. <laughs> Unclear that you get yourself into this type of circumstance and just assume everything's great. I don't know. Uh, maybe that's just how people think. <laughs> I mean, Polly and Doug Ford 
don't yeah. really seem to like each other. And I think the last thing that, you know, Polyev's going to care about if he wants to move fast and break things is like how Ontario subsidizes its northern colleges. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, move fast and break things is kind of what Doug Ford did when he took office, right? That's kind of what resulted in this mess in the first place. He came in, decided they had a better way of doing things or that, you know, this business particular lobby was being, had been ignored for too long. And they made a change, which probably wasn't supposed to blow up to this degree. And now it's kind of like, it, it's a thing that they have to deal with and that we all have to deal with. You know, when a government goes in and decides like, I know what to do, this will be a thing and this presses this policy lever. As you said, it can affect people 11,000 kilometers away. Makes me wonder, like, how many more of these there are, you know? Like, small things that that Doug Ford did over the past years that are just going to start coming to mm -hmm. fruition. And I, I feel like there's there's a more, right? Like, this wasn't a big deal when it happened. And these things will outlast his time in office. That's the, yeah. You often see... I feel like we're still going to be stepping on shards of glass in our feet and pulling them out and wondering, like, years in the future and wondering, when the fuck do we break a glass? When is this on the floor? It's like, oh, Doug Ford, when he was his bull in the China shop, just raging in and smashing everything. Oh, they, we, we didn't manage to clean up all the pieces. They're still like, oh, it's really into the fucking carpet. All right, we're not going to get our deposit back on that. Well, like you said, Jono, time and capitalism have a fun way of turning even a small northern college that was probably founded uh, to train nurses in the 1930s into an operation that leads to hundreds of uh, people in India selling their farms so their students can go to school in North York. And now it's time for Foreseeable, foreseeable disaster, disaster of the Month. Of the month. Come on, come on, come on. Uh, my foreseeable disaster of the month, you know, is just once is looking across northeast from the Candleland offices to 129 Peter Street, which is the shelter referral center. That's not supposed to be a shelter in of itself, but, you know, it's where people who are in downtown who need a place to stay for the night are supposed to go and then be referred to housing, caseworkers, etc. Due to a dispute between the municipal and federal governments, the city's policy since start of June has been like, we can't take any more asylum claimants in the shelter system until the federal government gives us more money to please help take care of them. And I'm sure the federal government should be giving them more money. But because of this change, uh, it's left a lot of people with nowhere to go. And in practice, it's meant that many of them have gone to the shelter referral center and set up camp on the street. And it's grown and grown and grown at the corner of Pete, northeast corner of Peter and Richmond. When I walked in to record this evening, there was a protester there holding up a sign saying, I should take a picture saying like, this is what Canada does to African refugees. It's getting to be a thing. And my foreseeable disaster is that Doug Ford will just be like, I don't know, just send them all into the workforce. Oh, no, he did that. Yeah. He said, just give them work permits. And then They'll be fine. Sleep, sleep in in McDonald's. Oh yeah, sleep in the Uber. Like what? Like what? Give them work permits. Sleep under your work permit. But look, another another low skilled labor pool. Like literally, that's what he's saying. Like he's mm. not. I I say that um, 
facetiously, sort of, but Doug Ford doesn't. Like, that has been his response multiple times when he's been asked about refugees. There was, um, there were many refugees that were being sent from Quebec to Niagara Falls region in the winter because there's lots of empty hotels there because mm. the tourism season isn't in high gear. And he was asked about that. And yeah, that's what he says. Well, why don't they have work permits? they had work permits, if the feds gave them work permits, then this would all be fine. So, like, I think that is an insight, you know, even further into our, our previous conversation of, like, this is how he looks at people. Well, I'm sure that uh, Burger King with the Frankenstein's monster on top uh, needs people to work at it year round. And I mean, there are a lot of countries I imagine in which a person would not have the opportunity to work in a Burger King that is a, has a Frankenstein's monster on the roof. The Dream of Canada. And that was Wag the Doug, a show about treating humans with dignity. Or or not. I'm Jonathan Goldsby, and I'm still sometimes on Twitter at Goldsby, and I'm occasionally hosting Shortcuts, which is the media criticism show that comes out Thursdays in the main Canadaland feed, and I've got an episode of Canadaland, the Monday show out this past week, and also I think I'm doing one coming up this next week, and you can also find me scorching in the heat of the Acropolis. Of, of, of the Acropolis. <laughs> yeah. I'm Allison Smith, and you can find me on Twitter at Queen's Park today. Well, that's much simpler. Or at the, the Sunnyside Pool. Mm. <laughs> our producer is Katie Lore. Annette Ajofo is our managing editor. Karen Pugliese is our editor-in-chief. And our theme music is by Nathan Burley. Our podcast is listener-supported. Go to canadaland.com slash join to help us keep this podcast going. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA-approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.